Now, it's not often that you hear a sermon on the virgin birth of Christ when it's not December, as Barbara was just talking about. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we go places where um, they're starting to sell Christmas things way before Christmas, right? And, and uh, some people love that, and some people don't love that, and some people are already listening to Christmas music, and some people don't want to hear Christmas music until it's really officially Christmas season, and, and uh, you know, that's just one of those things that we, um, we all have our different opinions about. But what I want us to consider this morning as we preach, uh, look at, think about the virgin birth of Christ here at the beginning of November is is both sort of the pro and the con to focusing only on the birth of Christ in December. Because there are some pros to that, right? Because the, the, birth, the story of the birth of Christ, you may have heard more sermons and more Bible studies about that story from the Bible than any other story because we have a special time each year when we focus on that, right? And so you've heard a lot about the birth of Christ, for a lot more, for example, than you probably have about Christ's transfiguration, which don't hear as many sermons about because there's not really, we don't, we don't have a special Sunday where we focus on that. But for the birth of Christ, sometimes we spend three or four weeks in December focusing on the birth of Christ. So we, it's a massively significant, important event, and we hear about it a lot each year, and that's really good. But the downside to that is that it's easy for us to kind of say, well, the birth of Christ, that's what we talk about in December. And we don't think about it, we don't sing about it, we don't talk about it much any other time of the year. And and the downside to that is that we can forget that the birth of Christ is not just a story that we tell in December. The birth of Christ is a central and essential part of the story of how God has saved his people. It's a part of the gospel. And if we're talking about the gospel all the time, week after week, we need to remember that the birth of Christ, the way Jesus came into the world, is a significant part of of how God has saved us, and therefore a significant part of how we should tell the story all throughout the year, and not just in December. So it is good for us to sing Christmas hymns, even when it's not Christmas. Because they're Christmas hymns, yes, but they're hymns of salvation. They're gospel hymns. They're reminders of what God has done to show His love for us and save us through the sending of His Son into the world. And we're talking about it this morning because we're working our way through the Apostles' Creed as sort of our guide to the central and essential doctrines of the Christian faith and going to the Scriptures to see what the Bible tells us about those central and essential doctrines. And the one that we are on this morning is the birth of Christ, where the Apostles' Creed says that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and He was born of the Virgin Mary. It's included in the creed. The virgin birth of Jesus is included in the Apostles' Creed, again, because this is central and essential to what we believe. There is no gospel without the virgin birth of Christ. There is no salvation without Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, because this is how God became man, and this is how God came to save us, and without this event, there could be no cross, no resurrection, 
no ascension. But it's also important that we recognize that the virgin birth helps us understand who Jesus is. Not just how he was able to come and do what he did, as important and central as those events are, right? His death and resurrection and ascension and so on. It's not only important because that enabled him to come and do those things. It's also important because it reminds us how he was able to do those things. Because of who he is. Who he is comes before what he did. If he was not God, he could not save us. And if he was not man, he could not take our place. He could not die. And the virgin birth reminds us, teaches us, shows us how it came to be that Jesus is both God and man. So in this phrase that we're focusing on this morning, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, there are three truths that I don't want us to miss. The first one is in one sense so obvious and so foundational, it is very easy to miss. And that is that God acted in history and even entered human history himself. The second is that the virgin birth communicates the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And then the third is that the virgin birth of Christ communicates the humanity of Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Those are the three things we're going to focus on this morning. So what is it that the creed is reminding us and helping us summarize about what we believe. We believe, first of all, that God acted in history, that God entered human history. And and the reason I bring this up at this point is because one of the clearest places that we're reminded of that is where it says that he was born of the Virgin Mary. That Jesus was born of a particular woman... Mary, who was betrothed to a particular man, Joseph, who lived in a particular place in Israel. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They ended up in Nazareth. Later, the creed also reminds us that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a particular man, a Roman ruler, who ruled over Israel for a small, brief period of time. And these names, Mary and Pilate, remind us that Jesus came into the world among particular people at a particular point in history, at a particular place, and that these events really happened. Christianity is not just a ideas or truths about what God is like. Christianity is not just instruction about how we should live, what we should do, what we should not do. 
Christianity does teach us the truth about who God is. Christianity does teach us about how we should live. But it's not merely like a philosophy of life or merely a a sort of theology about who God might be. Christianity is news. It is news about events that really happened. Not just this is who God is, this is what God did, and how He did it, and among whom He did it. Our God, in other words, is not the God of deism. Deism typically summarizes the idea that God is out there somewhere, and He made all this and put it into motion, but He doesn't really care about it. He's not involved in it. He's not really involved in the details of your life or the details of how the world works. You may have heard the famous illustration of God as the, uh, the God of deism as the sort of the divine watchmaker. Makes the watch, winds it up, sends it out, lets it go. Forgets about it. Not worried about it. That's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Christianity. Our God not only created everything that exists, not only sustains and upholds everything that exists, but He is intricately involved in everything that happens throughout the universe and every individual person's life. And not only that, but He came down into His creation, becoming as one of His creation for the sake of His creation. This is the good news. This is the gospel, that the God who made us, loved us enough, despite our rebellion, loved us enough that God the Son Himself came down into the world as a man, so that He might die in our place for our sins, so that He might rise, securing our eternal salvation, securing our eternal fellowship with Him. That's the good news that we believe. That's the good news that we preach. That's what we would invite you to believe if you're not a Christian. To acknowledge your sin, to turn to Jesus, to trust in Him, to believe that God has loved you by sending His Son to save you, if you'll trust Him. So that's the first thing that we're reminded by this portion of the creed, is that the Bible tells us that God has acted in human history, has even entered human history. The second thing that this portion of the creed reminds us, and that the the Bible makes very clear, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And, And the way it reminds us of this is by saying that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the ways the the creed highlights the deity of Christ, is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now we read this in the story of the birth of Jesus in Matthew uh, and in Luke. In Matthew, we're told um, that this is what happened. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, in this way, in verse 18 of Matthew 1. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, from the Holy Spirit. That's not how it normally works. That is supernatural, right? That is surprising. Joseph doesn't automatically know that's what's going on, 
Right? The, the, the Bible tells us next that her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he assumed that Mary had been unfaithful. So he's a good man, but he still is, you know, this, this is not how it's supposed to work. And so he's resolved to divorce her. But then verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. If Jesus was just a man like everyone else, he would have had a human father like everybody else. But that's not how Jesus came into the world. He was not conceived by Joseph or any other man. He was conceived supernaturally by a work of God, the Holy Spirit. Because he is God. He's not just a man. He's not a mere man. He is God becoming man. Similarly, when uh, Luke tells us Mary's side of the story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, the angel speaks to her and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? How am I going to have this child? How am I going to bear this son? And it says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's plenty of mystery there in how all that took place. right? When when the angel tells Mary, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. We don't know how that worked. We don't know all the details. We don't understand how God could be conceived in the womb of a virgin. We just know that's what God said. And that's what God did. And the angel emphasizes that because that's how it's going to take place, that the child to be born, he says, will be called holy, the son of God. It's not going to be like any other child that has been born. He's entering the world in a different way than every other child because this child is different than every other child. This child is divine. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. That emphasizes his divinity. And so does the second half of the statement when it says that he was born of a virgin. That's the other half of the same part of the story, right? Matthew goes on to say, in Matthew 1, after Joseph heard all this and understood all of it, verse 24 and 25, it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. So Mary remained a virgin until the time that Jesus was born. The angel explained again how that was going to happen. Mary's question was, how can this be since I'm a virgin? It's not like any other instance 
of a child being born into the world because, again, he's not like any other child. The conclusion we are supposed to come from that is that this child must be divine, conceived by God himself, born in a supernatural way. This child must be God, must be divine. And Matthew spells that out for us, make sure we don't miss it. And he says that this is in fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet. He quotes Isaiah 7, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew explains, Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Often in the Bible, different people's names mean different things. And often they're connected to God and who God is, God's promises and things like that. And they're meant to be reminders of who God is or what God has done. But in Jesus' case, this name is not just a reminder of what God has done. It's a reminder of who Jesus really is. He's God with us. God has come to dwell among us. That's what the virgin birth is all about. God coming to be with us. So when we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin, we are confessing that He is God. That Jesus is God in the flesh. But we are also confessing His humanity. Right? We are not only confessing His deity, not only confessing that He is God, but we are saying that He is God in the flesh. That God Himself has come here to dwell among us, has become like one of us, in order to save us. Jesus did not just sort of like materialize out of nowhere as a 30-year-old man and start his ministry. He didn't, you know, sort of get like beamed down from a spaceship or something. He didn't appear like an angel occasionally will do in the form of a man. There he is. Where did he come from? And then he's gone. Where did he go? That's not how Jesus came into the world. He could have done that, but then he wouldn't be human. And if he wasn't human, he couldn't take our place. If he wasn't human, he couldn't die. So that's not what he did. He came into the world in one sense, unlike any other person. Nobody else has been born of a virgin. Nobody else has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. But in another sense, he came into the world just like every other person. Because he was conceived in his mother's womb. And he was born of a woman, just like all the rest of us. Because he was man. To say that he was conceived, to say that he was born, is to say that he is human. He became a human being. Paul sums this up in Galatians 4 when he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He came as one of us in order to save us. That's another reason why He's called God with us. Because He's God... But now he's with us, not merely among us, but as one of us. This is also what John is saying in John 1.14, where the first verse of John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's divine. He's eternal. He was there in the beginning. Has no beginning himself. But then he says in verse 14, And the Word, who's God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. He's God, but he became flesh. He took upon himself humanity. He had flesh and bones. He was a real human being. He did not cease to be God. But he began to be man. He took upon himself human nature, human body, just like us. Jesus is God in the flesh. Why does all that matter? Why does it matter that God has acted in human history? Why does it matter that Jesus is God in the flesh? Why does it matter that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he's both God and man? Why is that so significant? Why is all that important? Well, the angel told Joseph why it was important in Matthew 1.21. He said about Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means, and that's why he came. He came to save his people from their sins. Now, how is that going to happen? Think about this for just a moment. Even if, even if we only have that line, You're going to call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. If we stopped and thought about that for a moment, we ought to be able to come just from that line to the conclusion that Jesus must be God. Because of this right here. Who alone does the Bible say is able to save? God. Only God can save. Jonah, when he was trapped in the belly of the fish, right? because he'd been rebelling against God, and, and he prays and he cries out to God, and he, he turns back to God. At the end of his prayer, he says in Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is something that is God's. It's not man's. I can't save myself, and I can't save anybody else. Only God can. The Bible says in Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, and a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Don't trust a man who can't save you, in other words. Trust God, because only God can save If Jesus is coming to save his people from their sins, Jesus must be God. But in order to save, he has to be God. He also has to be man. This is what Hebrews 2 says. It says, Since therefore the children, that is those he's going to save, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He took flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, that is, to to offer a sacrifice that would uh, absorb God's wrath against our sin, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews says. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to be God so He could save us. But He had to be man, too, in order to save us. Because as I was saying to the kids, God can't die. Well, we're talking about God doesn't have a birthday, right? God can't die. He had to become man so He could die. But it's not enough for a man to die. I can't die for my own sins. You can't die for your own sins. We can't die for each other's sins. Jesus becoming man could die, and as God could offer a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world, because He is divine. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's God. So Jesus had to be God and man to die for our salvation. And how else could that have happened? except that he be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. How else could it be? How else could God enter the world as a genuine human being? I don't know of any other way. Evidently, that's the only way, because that's how God did it. So when we celebrate Christmas, when we think about the birth of Christ, whatever time of year that it is, when we talk about the gospel, we need to remember these truths. Jesus was not just a good man who did some good things, who died a terrible, tragic death. That might be significant historically, but it wouldn't merit This, gathering Sunday by Sunday to worship in His name. He's not just a good man. He's the God-man. He is God who took on human nature, took on flesh and blood in order to be our Savior, in order to be our substitute, in order to take our place on the cross, paying for our sin rising for our salvation, ascending to God's right hand, where He intercedes for us even now, and one day He's going to come back, and He's still going to have that flesh and blood. He still has His human body, even now, in heaven. He didn't shed it after His resurrection, when He went back into heaven. He remains the God-man, so that He might be our merciful and faithful high priest. Let's pray.